I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are without our, our co-host, Brandon. Ask you, he is uh, tending to his children with his sick wife. Um, I don't know if that violates some HIPAA law or something for from saying what we don't work together. So, well, I, we do work together. This is kind of business or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we're, we're the London Lyceum. We, we're a place, a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but also we have our website that is devoted to generating thinking as well. And we do it within a context that is trying to create a intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, uh, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, particularly the cheerful part. We don't like to be jerks. Um, I know we all have a tendency to be jerks. I think the internet probably does that to us, but we try with, with everything in us to, to promote meekness, the meekness of wisdom that you see in James 3, and I think you see exuded in Christ's own life. And this is us bringing back uh, our monthly Hanover House episode. So this was originally designed just to be a discussion between me and Brandon and two other pastors or or, or two other brothers who are, I guess, part of the podcast network that we've got going on here with the London Lyceum, uh, talking more about uh, previous episodes, topics, questions, thoughts on that. And we, we didn't do it, I guess, in... Uh, November or December, uh, but we got some feedback to say, hey, bring it back. So here we are again. Uh, we're without Brandon, but we've got uh, the most reverend uh, Connor McMakin with us, uh, <laughs> pastor in Michigan, Spring Lake, right? Correct. On that part. Okay. And then we've got Cody Float, who is down in, you're in Alabama or Mississippi, one of the two? Yeah, I'm in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Same thing. Okay. And remind, you're just a church member. Are you an intern or what are you doing at your church? I am a lowly church member. I okay. did go, I went lowly. through a pastoral internship. It's not lowly. No, not if you have a good ecclesiology, but yeah. Um, yeah, I went through a pastoral internship and now I'm just living here, being a member, uh, pursuing ordination um, while managing a coffee shop. That's fantastic. And you're doing uh, THM studies at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, correct? Yep. So, yeah, pursuing yeah. Uh, THM in biblical studies slash OT, so Old Testament, with a desire to go into doctoral studies. Perfect. So, Connor is our pastoral theology editor at uh, the London Lyceum. And uh, Cody is over the exegetical theology uh, section. So both of them have their own levels of expertise. And before we get into the topic today, which we're going to talk about the Trinity, because we got a lot of questions about that. Uh, I did promise, I think anybody who listened to an episode, uh, when this comes out, there was probably like a week time frame from our Richard Koss episode drop to Mark Garcia's episode drop where I told people to go, Hey, it's 2021, go drop a review on iTunes or wherever you listen and let us know. And I'll tell you what, uh, I was going to give a shout out to somebody, but looking here, I, I got n no one did a review from that. <laughs> so clearly either not many people are listening or I'm not very persuasive. We've got six total reviews on here on iTunes. So I look here, Jake, Gutierrez, I think that's how I pronounced your last name. We've gone back and forth on Twitter a couple of times. He recently posted one uh, in December uh, just saying our podcast was faithful and it's excellent work. So thanks, Jay. And we've got a couple other guys on here as well as the very first review is my brother-in-law. So full of <laughs> wisdom and clarity. Yes, that's absolutely right. We did get two five-star ratings from two wonderful listeners who deserve some sort of pat on the back, but I don't know who you are. Uh, if you leave a review, I can call you out. 
and say, Jordan, thank you. you need to you need to offer these folks a carrot. A so, carrot. Well, you know, we every, offer free books all the time. No, every five star review with a nice little two to three sentence, you know, tidbit puts them in the drawing for. Oh, you get an extra. You get an extra. Uh, chance to win our next book. Yeah, That's and, a good idea. And I know you've got books that you can give away, Jordan. You've got them coming daily in the oh. mail. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's not accurate, but I try my best to get free stuff for people who listen. <laughs> uh, just because I think everybody likes free books. Who doesn't? So I like free books. So the more the opportunities to do that, the better. But anyway, so we're going to talk about this topic of the Trinity. We did uh, three episodes recently last a year at the end of the year on the Trinity. We had one with Glenn Butner, uh, just having this more traditional Western understanding of what is the Trinity, asked him some basic questions. He's got a book coming out soon. I think introduction to the Trinity, a great conversation there. Then we did a conversation with Dale Tuggy on Unitarianism and let him kind of give his defense of why he thinks the Trinity is uh, Bush League. Uh, I don't know if that's how he would call it. I, I like Dale. Uh, I don't like his view. And I think we know that. I mean, He's cool. We're cool, but we disagree, obviously. And then we had uh, Bo Branson and Skylar McManus talk more about this Eastern view, for lack of a better term. It's uh, monarchy of the father. And I think all three episodes are really interesting. I think obviously most of our listeners probably found the latter two most interesting just because they're more familiar with Glenn's view and they're far less familiar with uh, the other two views. I mean, I got I don't know, probably 10 direct messages about Dale's episode because they had never really heard someone putting forth Unitarian uh, arguments. So what I want to do with this episode uh, is kind of address some of those questions that we had received, as well as just talk a little bit, you know, how do we think about teaching our own church members the Trinity? Well, what does that look like? I know Brandon recently did I think a series of talks to his church uh, on the Trinity, but he's not here. So he can't give us the the lowdown on that. And if you really want that, maybe you let us know, you can email us and I can have him maybe draw up uh, something for, for the website to say, here's how I do it. This is what I did. Maybe that, maybe that would help. You can let us know. So let, let's kick it off uh, thinking, what is the Trinity? So if I were to just ask you, what is the Trinity? Do you have a ready-made definition or, or are you going to want to say, hey, let me look at this book that's going to tell me a better definition? Or do you want to give multiple examples? How, how, would, you, how would you answer that question? Radio silence. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I would, I'll just kick it off and say God is Trinity. Or if you're asking me what is Trinity, then God. Uh, he, you know, I think the standard definition there is he's eternally existing in three persons, yet one. And um, I would further say that there's um, there's a united will in, in the three persons. I don't know if that's the right technical term, united will, but um, they're not depending divided. on who you ask. Yeah, they're not divided <laughs> in their in their um, purpose, their will. Cody, would you change, add, differentiate anything? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I really would love that from Connor. The only thing I would add is, um, yeah, speaking to as well, um, when we talk not 
just the oneness of God, but also the idea that he is three persons. And so speaking, when we talk about and define the Trinity, also using that to speak to the economic missions of God, um, even if we wouldn't per se use that as like our only grid for understanding the Trinity, um, because some people do that and go off the rails a bit. Um, but that's what I found helpful. I'll mention Fred Sanders' recent volume on the Triune God and that like new studies and dogmatics series. Um, he emphasizes the economic missions of the Triune persons, and I found that very helpful. Um, and yeah, just explaining to particularly lay people like how do we um, define and describe the Trinity? Perfect. So. I think our own, I think all three of us affirm the the second London confession of faith. So it's its own definition of the Trinity is just in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the father, the word or son and Holy spirit of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Uh, the father is of none. Uh, the son is eternally begotten of the father, the Holy spirit proceeding from the father and the son. And then it, it goes on. So I think that's a, a fairly succinct summary of what the Trinity is from at least our confessional heritage. I think uh, what the 1689 says is pretty representative of the majority of Christians. I mean, you can go to the Nicene Creed or or the or Chalcedon or whatever, or I think Richard Cross pronounces it as Chalcedon. And if I want to sound more sophisticated, <laughs> maybe I'll say that. But you can go to those other statements, and I think they're going to say basically the same thing about the Trinity. Three subsistences, or three persons, one substance, one power, one eternity. Connor, you mentioned one will. So I think depending on how you cash it out, there's a singular will or there is a united, as in they have three distinct, but yet the same direction. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. I want to talk, oh, and I guess what is the Trinity? You know, I, I looked over a couple books last night, just kind of trying to get the highlights and I think Scott Swain says this about when you try to define what the Trinity is. He says it's the church's interpretation of God's revealed name in Matthew 28, uh, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a singular name, uh, yet three persons. So let, let's begin with a couple of questions about Unitarianism that I've seen keep cropping up uh, from different people, whether it's uh, antagonists towards the Trinity or those who are more positive towards it and, and affirm it and believe it. So I guess we can just start. Is the Trinity actually in the Bible? Is it in the Old Testament? Is it in the New Testament? I think I saw Dale Tuggy say, God is three divine persons. The Trinity doesn't have any clear, believable sense before the theorists start to do his work. So essentially his claim here is, if you look at the Bible, it's it's not there. It's not in the text. You have to do a bunch of gymnastics to get to get to the Trinity. So maybe Cody, you're doing old Testament stuff. Do you feel like there are texts that explicitly give us the Trinity? Yeah. I think there are numerous places where you see, um, a revealing of the triune Godhead at work in the history of Israel. Um, a lot of people, when you talk about Trinity in the OT, they immediately turn to, passages like Genesis 1.26, right? So let us make man in our image. Um, that's often the quick go-to. Um, that probably wouldn't be my first go-to, um, though I think that's definitely relevant um, to the discussion. But you see 
um, even though um, there may not be an explicit like creedal type statement in the Old Testament as to the triune God and the uh, kind of the identity and actions of the three persons in Israel's history um, in the Old Testament, you do see consistently um, various moments in the narrative where actions that are taking place um, are taking place in order to reveal um, more than you could say merely the father, right? You see these actions that are figuring um, the son, that are revealing who the son is and what he's going to accomplish. You see actions and narratives that reveal the spirit, right? Who the spirit is, what the spirit's uh, mission is. Um, and so while it's not, like I said, kind of creedally explicit in the Old Testament, the Trinity is very clearly there um, on its own terms, I would say as well. So, Cody, I got a question for you about 126, uh, if you don't mind. If, if one were to be preaching that particular text uh, in the near future, no less, uh, would, you, <laughs> would you advocate for... Um, sort of defending that position that you can, quote unquote, see or understand uh, Trinity in let us make man in our image. And if you were to do that, what, what would your, what would kind of your argument be? Yeah. So I think you definitely should. Um, and most people who would, most people <laughs> who would deny, right, that you can make a Trinitarian argument from Genesis 126 often do so by saying, well, the us there is not a reference to the Godhead, but rather a reference to kind of the um, angelic host, the divine host, however you want to phrase that, right? So it's God the Father, particularly, with all of the kind of heavenly beings around him are looking down at creation and saying, let us, right, all of us make man in our image. And again, various people um, we'll then take that to you do different things with the image, right? Because that's particularly in context to let us make man in the image of God. Um, and so people will then say, well, he's not, you know, God's talking more about kind of the spiritual soulish reality of human beings that let's say like animals don't have. Um, and so that's because that would allow that would allow like the angelic host to be included in that right the kind of spiritual reality um but i would say um in a hermeneutical principle that i always use and i learned this from uh rich barcelos is um latter revelation so latter revelation always makes explicit what was implicit in what he says antecedent or prior revelation right and, you, and this is not even this is not necessarily even speaking to like New Testament use of the old, right? You can use this for Old Testament use of the old, right, as well. But you can see you see this reality when you read Genesis one in the context of the entirety of the biblical canon that you have God, uh, the Father, as Creator, right, through uh, His Word, right. He's audibly speaking, but in the context theologically, we can see that um, as as a reference for Christ, and then by or um, by means of the spirit of God, which we even see in Genesis one hovering over um, the face of the deep. And so I don't, I don't think that 
you frankly have to go very far in order to see that there is more than merely a father at work in the act of creation. Yeah. And I, and I coming across a lot of folks that are using that, uh, the word image there, uh, and that's specifically special for mankind. And, and, mm-hmm. and we image God in a way that the angelic hosts would not in yeah. dominion and responsibility and caretaking of God's created kingdom. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a little off topic. Sorry, Jordan. But No, no, that's <laughs> fine. There a lot of rabbit trails I thought about going down there, but I'm going to keep myself from doing it. So I imagine somebody's going to, if someone's skeptical of the Trinity, they're going to say, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying there, but that's not very clear. And and even if it is there, wouldn't you think that something that must be believed would be explicitly very, very, very clear? Wouldn't you think if I have to believe in the Trinity to be a Christian, shouldn't there be like a definition where it says here, here oh, I am God, I am Trinity, I am Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Should, shouldn't there be something there? I, I think Dale has offered several arguments like this. I think of it some you can call it the clarity argument. And basically he's saying if God's all-knowing and all-powerful and he wanted to cause all our most believers to believe in one, even just Trinity theory, uh, he could easily do it. And he seems to have done that about Christ's resurrection. Uh, all agree it's the same body. It's brought back to life. He's still alive. He's immortal. Um, why is it that he hasn't made this particular doctrine as clear and as agreed upon as something like resurrection? So that that seems to be his argument. What what would maybe, maybe he'll correct me if I'm wrong? I'm sure, but I think that's <laughs> the gist of it. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, my my response would be that we have to take into account the reality of not only how scripture is to be read, but also the reality of progressive revelation, right? So that God is um, building, he's kind of figuring biblical history and escalating those figures and those types across biblical history in order to make more explicit, again, what was implicit prior. So um, even though the Trinity is not explicitly um, like I said, kind of creedily revealed early on in the Old Testament and like kind of clear, succinct, what we would want as modern people, like propositional statements, you know, even though we are not given that, um, we do see this intentional um, escalation across the biblical canon that is giving us, in a sense, more ammo to see who God is um, from beginning to end of scripture. So that's that's the progressive revelation side of it. But back in regards to how we read scripture, um, I get the gist that a lot of people who make those kind of comments about needing these kind of these kinds of explicit propositional statements, right, in scripture in order for a given theological doctrine or issue to be true in a particular place. I would argue they're not reading scripture. They're probably not reading scripture the way it was meant by God to be read. Right. So, and it's so easy to do this in kind of our modern, you know, postmodern moment where we're, we're often reading scripture very kind of like rash rationally, right. We're, we're reading it propositionally. Um, and we're not as much reading it, um, theologically 
right? So when you begin doing kind of like theological reading, particularly, let's say the Old Testament, right? These realities that you have a creator God, you have Yahweh, who across the biblical narrative is even revealing who he is and what he's going to do through, you know, a figure like, um, you know, the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord right now, even that's a contested issue, but, and then you, but even aside from the angel of the Lord, you also see, you know, the clear and continuous presence of the spirit of God, right. Explicitly mentioned throughout the old Testament narrative. Um, And so even though we're not given creedal propositions, um, you see in the life of Israel, what I would say is a, um, theologically clear revelation of who God is as Trinity. Yeah, I think I, I would agree and add to that. You know, we we have to do this all the time when we're coming up with definitions, when we're coming up with, you know, things we must believe or things we should believe. You know, I'm thinking the word membership's not in the Bible, but it's, I mean, I think we all would agree that it's certainly there. Um now that's not something that you must believe to be saved. Well, let's use that same, you know, understanding for something like atonement, something like justification. Yeah, there are places in Scripture where that is um, certainly uh, described and explained, but we have to do a lot of work to come to a succinct definition of each of those things, and yeah, I mean, one person's definition of justification might be different than than another's. Um, and they could both be Christians and, and, uh, or one could be wrong and one could not be a Christian. So, I mean, we do this all the time, even with things that are, even with words in the English language that are explicitly, or I should say specifically used in, in the Bible. So, um, and if I'm not making any sense, Jordan, use that edit button. But to, to me, it's, it's kind of a, a piggyback on what Cody said. Like we're, we're doing this all the time when we're, when we're doing theology and doing it properly. Yeah. A very, I would say this, a very literalistic reading of scripture. It will probably not get you very many places mm. right, theologically. Mm. Um, sure. And that's often the vibe I get from a lot of people who make comments like this, particularly about the Trinity. Um, but you can you say this to all sorts of theological issues. Um, you often have to, yeah, kind of, hide behind a literalistic reading of the Bible or even have to hide behind, you know, even such simple things as like word fallacies, you know, well, Trinity's on the Bible, you know, X, Y, Z is not explicitly said in the Bible. Thus, you know, I'm just going to throw it out. So. So Connor, I mean, to your point, you, you gave the example of, I guess, atonement and justification. I guess the the reply would simply be, well, maybe I don't think justification is necessary. Like you have to believe in justification by faith to be saved. Or maybe I, I don't think you have to believe in any particular theory of atonement. You just have to believe that Jesus saves you, right? So they would just, I guess, deconstruct the necessity of certain doctrines or certain doctrinal formulations. But I think, I mean, for me personally, I, I think this goes along with just doctrinal development in general, where I, I don't think something has to be spelled out explicitly in the Bible to be a necessary belief. Um, I don't think something can't develop and not, and that means it's not biblical. I don't think, you know, a doctrine developing over time means it's not a biblical doctrine. Justification by faith, the way 
the way that Protestants would understand it today, I don't think is explicitly spelled out in the text as if I can go find this is exactly what we believe. I mean, an argument could probably be made a little bit easier for that one because I can just go to Romans 3 or or wherever and say, well, look, here, here are the words that I'm saying, <laughs> just by faith alone. But the, the way that we go about arguing it and constructing the doctrine is substantially removed from the text, not saying it's going against the grain, but it's going with the grain. It, it's building upon the the pieces that are in the text to to build it up to a theological point. So I think mm-hmm. um, doctrine development is fine. Personally, I, I don't have a problem with doctrine developing as long as this is not going against the scriptural meaning of, of what it means. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. And I think we see that we see that in the biblical text, right? So I forgot who I heard this from recently, but like Ephesians in Ephesians, when we and when we when we see Paul speaking about this foundation that's being built on the apostles and prophets, um, it ought to make sense that there will be development from that foundation, right? Particularly in the early periods of the church, right? Um, so yeah, I don't. I don't find that to be a very controversial point. <laughs> yeah, and then what? Who is it who said like the old testament? Old testament is like a room, uh, f- fully fur- finely furnished but dimly lit, and then the, in the New Testament, it's it's brighter lights. And I think even now yeah. we have clearer understanding of things, have being two thousand removed from the events of, of Christ dying and, and rising again and ascending. I think we have a, cl- a greater clarity regarding things because I mean Jesus himself promised that his spirit would come and would lead us into all truth and I think that's an ongoing reality for the church I think the the church is continuing to grow and understand and, and live more in, in the the truth of doctrine and I honestly think I mean yeah there are a lot of theories of the Trinity this is how it should go but there is substantial agreement around a core set of principles one substance three persons, that have been codified in these ecumenical creeds that everyone who's a Trinitarian universally asserts to, except for maybe a few small outliers of some sort. So I just don't see this huge layer of disagreement. I think even if I asked, you know, your average church member, so Connor, if I went to your church and I asked 10 of your church members, you know, what is the Trinity? I'd probably get some convoluted answers, but I think I would still get these same core things. Well, one God and three persons (laughs) idea. So yeah, they may not have a robust way to explain it, but I still think that they're going to get at this core meaning uh, of the Trinity. I don't, I, and I don't see how you escape that when you read particular texts of Scripture. I mean, there's Scripture that's saturated with it. You read Ephesians one, goes from the Father's work to the Son's work to the Spirit's work. I just don't see how you can avoid the implications of well, I've got to rethink what it means that for the Lord your God is one. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Shema type thing. So I, I think, yeah, it's not explicitly laid out, but there's a lot of things in scripture that aren't explicitly laid out. And there's a reason for that. It's because the spirit guides us in all truth and, and is forcing us to think it's not, the Bible's not, you know, like an instruction manual. It's not a, a analytic philosophy textbook. It's, it's not doing those types of things. It, it, it's designed for you to think beyond it. So, I guess those are my thoughts. So I, I want to ask then, why do you think Jesus is divine? Why, why is, why is that? 
Are, are there spe- specific reasons? I know I've got a couple that I'm going to go through, but do you guys have any that come to mind for yourself that you would want to highlight? Is the, is the question, why is he or why does he need to be? or why? Uh, well, you can go either way. I, I think it, my initial thought was, why is he? But you can throw in the, the necessity clause in there too. Yeah, I mean, by virtue of his um, personhood within the triune definition that we've just um, established, I think he is because he is. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's maybe uh, a simple way to, a simple minded way to say it. But, um, you know, I, I, I think as far as needing to be, I mean, as far as the necessity for um, us to be saved, the necessity of his uh, divinity for us to be saved, I mean, we need a perfect image bearer. Uh, we need, um, and I'm thinking Genesis one thoughts uh, lately. So we we need a perfect image bearer. We need uh, a the 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 full image. The 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 language from Colossians one, um, the image of the invisible God. We we need that perfect representation. I'm thinking Hebrews one three. Uh, it Colossians one. Uh, yeah. We need this to. Uh, to reverse, so to speak, the, the broken kingdom uh, due to the, the sin of Adam. And we, we need that second Adam, but we need a perfect second Adam, uh, one who is um, divine in order to, um, to, to justify uh, ourselves, our sinful selves, to redeem us from our sinful selves before uh, the Father, before a Holy Father. So that's, that'll get the ball rolling. Cody can probably help me yeah. pick it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So to keep it in, I guess my old Testament lane a bit. So you, we need one in the old Testament, I think just makes this very clear. We need one who is not able to sin, right. Yeah. Uh, to be the true son or the true Israel of God. Right. We see that across the old Testament narrative, you see all of these righteous men, Right, all of these Adam figures who are ultimately figuring Christ himself. But even though they often do miraculous and wonderful things, we're continually reminded in the midst of their shortcomings in particular that this man is not the one. Right, Whether it's Noah or Abraham or David or Solomon, or there's a whole host of figures in the Old Testament that make this reality, I think, pretty abundantly clear that the promised one from Genesis 3.15 onward is not just going to be um, a really righteous king, right? Who's just, who who's righteous, but he's just a man, right? He's, he's just kind of the one to finally bring Israel. It's kind of temporal hopes. Rather, it's not that. Rather, it is this hope that there will be a true Adam, Right, a better Adam who is not able to sin, um, like Adam was able to sin and he did, but rather we're going to have this one who's not able to, and he's not able to, not because he's some like higher class of human being, but because he is divine and human, um, and so. So I, I would naturally think probably the the antagonist is just going to say, well. Uh, why do you need to be divine to not be able to sin? They, I guess they would probably say, well, Jesus was a uniquely spirit-empowered man who had the spirit in undue measure and therefore did not sin because of that. 
So he achieved great things, and that's why he didn't sin. And it, there is no necessary connection between divinity and that. Of course, and I guess they would say, yeah, he was miraculously conceived as well to be kept from original sin. Lottie, 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 da. Is there a, a necessary link truly between his inability to sin and his divinity? So uh, I was. So I would, I would say yes. Though I can understand, I guess where the antagonist could be going with that. If, you know, so if you, if you think about glorified humanity, right? Yeah. Glorified humanity will not be able to sin. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right? So, so that's so, a good. So, yeah. So some, somebody, I guess, could make the argument that well, Christ is just this glorified human, right? Who's he is the perfect human merely the perfect human and uh, he is our representative i would say yeah like yes like humanity in our glorified state will be unable to sin um but the reality is too and i would make this argument in regards to atonement like not even kind of a glorified human being Will we will be able to satisfy the divine justice of God, right in its totality, right? Um, and so that's where I think when we begin to think about, um, I think a healthy doctrine of the Trinity helps us answer this question of why Christ had to be divine yeah. in order to accomplish His work, right? When you understand who God is then you begin to see that well, no mere man, even a glorified man is going to be able to accomplish the work of redemption um, as, as God did can and does. So no, and I think that atonement angle is, is necessary. At least I, I like the atonement angle. I think I mentioned that in the interview we did with, with Dale. And I think, you know, even, even a sinless goat, I mean, that doesn't take away the sins of the world. Right, you yeah. you need a, you need a divine God man yeah. in order to have a sufficiently uh, worthy atonement to take yeah. away the sins of the world. So yeah. I think that that's a necessary piece. I think there are a couple other really persuasive aspects, and one of them, I guess, Lord. So Jesus is is called Lord throughout the New Testament. I mean, just all the time, right? And Lord is the Greek word that's used for the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Yep. And it's ascribed to Jesus constantly. So I, I think that's that's a, that's probably the easiest set, layup that you could make, slam dunk, saying, yeah, uh, it's constant. Jesus is called Lord all the time. They yeah. would not call him that if they did not ascribe to him divinity. I, yeah. I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, Romans 9, 5, I think Jesus is designated with theos. I, I know there's textual critical stuff to, to potentially deny that or something. But I think that's uh, another example. I think another good one is just the concept of worship. Uh, why is it okay to worship anything other than God? If Jesus is not divine, why is it okay for us to worship him? You look at Exodus 20, you look at all these other places. I mean, God's a jealous God. I mean, the, the essence of idolatry is worshiping uh, yeah. something other than God. So if, if I say worship is ascribed to God alone, uh, Jesus receives worship, then Jesus either must be God or or we must say that worship can be given to things other than God, which I think is absolutely incorrect. So I think that's a great argument. I mean, the fact that 
works that only God could do or ascribe to Jesus. I mean, Jesus created the world. Jesus is going to judge the world. Jesus is going to save the world. Jesus is preexistent. I don't know how you can say all these things and he's just a human being and he's not divine. You've got OT illusions galore. I mean, Jesus walking on the water. I think if you know your Old Testament well, you know that that's an act of what calming the storm is. That's something only Yahweh would do. So yeah, maybe you say, well, that's through the power of, of God and he's a human man, person. I just think the text itself, if you, if you read it the way it's intended to be in concert with the Old Testament, you're going to get the sense that no, it's not just that Jesus is spirit empowered. He actually is uh, divine. And I mean, you've got... Uh, I know I mentioned it in, in that Unitarian interview, interview, the John eight fifty eight, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And I think Dale's response was, well, the Jews got it all wrong. And, that, that you know, they're the knuckleheads throughout all the gospel of John. And I think that's fair. They do get it wrong all the time. But I, I don't think, I don't remember explicitly if they make the connection here totally in this or not, but Jesus is not being dumb here. He's not being silly. He's not, he is ascribing himself to divinity. He is ascribing himself uh, preexistence and using the, the divine name naming convention. So I don't see how you get around some of these things uh, without saying Jesus is divine and I've got to revise how I think of monotheism. Yeah, it, it does get complicated and messy at times, but I think this is what the church has believed and confessed throughout the centuries. And, and I, I'm willing to stand on the shoulders uh, of the church. I don't think the spirit would get something this central to the faith wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dale's own argument about clarity, I, I think I can make the same argument and say, well, if, if the Trinity is wrong, how is it the spirit could allow the church to screw it up this bad for this <laughs> long? How could they screw up for 2000 plus years? And I mean, maybe you'd say, well, there's political forces and all this stuff. I just don't, that's not the way I read scripture. That's not the way I think of the spirit guiding the the church and the truth. So I just don't see that as legitimate. Any other comment? Go ahead. No, I was going to ask Dale, would he, I'm trying to reflect back on that, that episode. Would he describe the personhood of God as singular? Yeah, I think so. so. The one God just is the father. Right. So, I mean, we're, I know you're kind of alluding to this or almost saying it, but you could flip the argument of oh, the burden of proof. If the burden of proof is on the Trinitarian. Well, I, I, scripture is so um, all the examples you just just gave. It's almost like it, it would be hard to prove the singular personhood of God on to, on the other way, going the other way. So it's like I put the burden of proof on the Trinitarian. I want to put the burden of proof on the Unit, yeah, yeah, I guess Unitarian is the right way to say it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. really difficult to read the Gospels and to uh, fall upon the just the singular singularity of just the Father, right? All of these statements, particularly in the Gospel of John, of Christ saying over and over again, "I and the Father are one." Right? If you see me, you see the Father. Right? Um, those I I think are very clear statements that. Um, his disciples, um, yeah, like his disciples and the Pharisees understood what he was trying to get at with that, right? Mm. Hence why they were trying to kill him, stone him, whatever. Um, and so, um, yeah, and I don't, I mean, I guess you can make, I guess Dale can make an argument that, well, they wanted to stone him because he was associating himself with the singularity of the Father. Um, I mean, I just, don't think that's off the cuff, the most straightforward reading of the text. So, yeah, I mean, 
I think a lot of the Unitarian arguments require you to to hold to a whole bunch of different presuppositions that I simply don't hold to. It requires a very literalistic reading of Scripture, as you mentioned, Cody, and I just don't think that's the way to read the Bible. So a lot of the times the premises that would be required to affirm in order to get the conclusion that the Trinity is wrong, I just reject certain premises. I don't think that they're legitimately accurate. So I, I think a lot of the arguments are not are not sound. But I, I mean, I don't want to go down that, that total rabbit trail. And I know one comment that was made that I think some people laughed at. I think uh, just be, knowing knowing me and knowing Brandon was, you know, I think Dale said, you know, be good Baptists. I guess read your go back to your Bible like a Berean and, and don't put so much trust in, in church history. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I reformed confessional Baptist put a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of faith in these uh, documents that have been worked out and thought through. So while yes, the Bible is the supreme and ultimate authority, that doesn't mean that there aren't derivative authorities. Yeah. I think I've got a paper in the journal of reformed theology that I, I kind of work out some of these ideas and I'm trying to defend intuition as a valid sense of, of interpretive authority to some degree. So you can go, find that if you want to read it i'll email it to you if you need it because i think it's locked away and like you have to pay five hundred dollars because it's brill to see it for five minutes it's that good huh <laughs> no <it's not> <laughs> <laughs> so before before we wrap up there are i guess two other things that i wanted to, to cover maybe social trinitarianism we don't really have to touch on this a lot I think I got more people saying, hey, I just want to hear a social Trinitarian perspective. And I say, yes, I do agree. So I'm going to work on getting somebody on to talk about that. But I, and honestly, I guess depending on when you're listening to this, if you're listening to this when it's when it comes out, we've got Craig Carter's episode replying to RT Mellon's coming out. We talked to him a little bit about social Trinitarianism and it's is it really heresy or not? I don't think it's heresy personally. I think it's heterodox potentially. So maybe let's just, I guess, put that to the side. We're going to try to do an episode with the social Trinitarian to talk us through that at some point in the future. Maybe do we want to talk about East West distinction since we had two episodes that was kind of East West. I know Richard Gross has said, and others have basically said, yeah, this distinction is bunk. Um, But others have said, well, wait, there is some truth to the fact that there are two different models or ways of thinking about the Trinity. So say the Eastern Orthodox Church rejects the filioque clause, this idea that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And I think they do that for reasons like, well, they'd say, well, it compromises the monarchy of the Father, and then it it confuses the Father and the Son. If the persons are supposed to be defined by their relations, if the Father and the Son have the same exact relations of spirating the Spirit, um, then I guess since the son and father aren't the same, their relation to the spirit can't be the same is basically the idea. So they're worried about that. So they just want to say, no, the son, I guess the spirit doesn't proceed from both the father and the son, but the father. Does that make sense? I mean, do do you have any thoughts West distinction or do we just want to move on and talk Trinity? I would just, I would just quick, quickly tag onto that and say, so my quick issue with the latter argument, I understand the, the East particular thinks that it breaks the the monarchy of the father to have the filioque clause. Um, my issue though, with um, particularly of how they convey persons and what persons are able to do is they often so bracket off the father, the son and the spirit that none of the three persons are able to engage in the same missional act, right? 
So like it's almost so fragmented, so segmented, right? The father can only do these things. The son can only do these things. The spirit can only do these things. And there could be no way in which any two persons can engage in the same uh, missional kind of economic act, um, or in this case, eternal act, right, of um, spirating the uh, the spirit. And, and I just don't think that's, that's like tenable at the end of the day. I think, yeah, I think when you, when you just, I think a just simple like reading of the biblical text. And I'm again, again, thinking of John's gospel, right? If you just read John's gospel on the face of it, um, there are numerous statements from Christ himself that seems to indicate that both he and the father are engaging in this kind of eternal act of sending the spirit um, upon, in this case, creation. So, um, I think, yeah, like we were saying before, the burden of proof is on the Unitarians. In this case, I would say similarly, the burden of proof is on um, the church in the East um, to have a, a meaningful response to not just how one would read the Gospel of John um, in particular, but how they would think about the acts of the three persons. Um, and, and maybe they have that. Yeah, maybe they have that. Uh, the one guy I would think off the cuff of my head would be like a John bear. Maybe he has a good response to that. Cause I know he's done a lot of work in John and also a lot of work in Trinity. So he might be a person that if listeners are interested, they can go look him up and see what he says. But yeah, I'm sure Corby Amos will be all over it. He could give us all the, the lowdown. <laughs> he loves him. Some John bear and some others. And Burns. I know he, he texts me or I guess he directs messaged me on Twitter all the time about these different comments that different big name Trinitarian guys will say that he's just like, this is unintelligible or this is so annoying. Uh, just slippery terminology galore, which you know what I, I get. I'm an early philosopher kind of guy. So I get annoyed with that, but that doesn't mean I disagree. Uh, I just <laughs> think be clear what you say and stop saying this <laughs> and say this instead, but that's irrelevant. So, we want to talk, close up. I mean, I want to make this somewhat practical. Not all of our episodes with interviews are. So I want to make the Hanover House part of that. I mean, we've had some discussion here about a significantly Unitarianism just because we got a lot of questions about that. But I also want to spend some time thinking about Trinity and the church. So how do you guys view best practices? I mean, what do you do to teach your church the Trinity? Is this something that you would only do in a, uh, a non-Sunday morning setting? Is this something you would want to emphasize in particular ways in your sermons? Would you want to do certain confessional or catechism stuff at some point? What, is, what does that look like? Um, all of the above. Mm. Uh, so that's I'll, I'll explain the way that I've done it. And um, I'm not a pastor, but I've preached um, fairly regularly at our church here. And I've actually like preached several times on some of like the classical attributes of God, um, which I I was in this like kind of cage stage of classical theism. And I was like, I just want to like preach on these things, you know, cause I want to get it out. We all go there. And remarkably, and I, I would say this, um, not just about those, like things like impassibility, simplicity, those kinds of things to, not just about that, but about the Trinity as a whole, um, there can be the stigma that will like, that's high lofty philosophical systematic 
uh, lay people don't need to know the ins and outs of it, right? They don't need to dig deep. They just kind of need the basics and they can move on. I just think that's really foolish. And I've seen that experientially. And like, I would say the most, and not that I preach for heartwarming comments, like I want people to be encouraged, but like the most helpful comments I've received as I've preached have been from those sermons where I've preached on the classical attributes of God. And I remember one comment where there was a, yeah, like a single mom who'd been through a horrific divorce situation. Like she came up to me after the service and was just, it was on the, uh, I was preaching on the incomprehensibility of God. And she came up to me almost in tears and just said that like that, like uh, my soul needed to hear about who God is. Like as she's walking through this really, really dark season. And that just like proved to me yet again that like, no, like the people of God, like simple people need um, just the deep truths of the Trinity in their life because it's eminently practical, practical, right? And it takes work. It takes work to get from kind of the philosophical, the systematic down into the practical, um, but it's worth going about. And so you can do that in a whole number of ways, whether you're preaching through it, whether you're going through a class, whether you're catechizing your children or catechizing your church, right? I think the church ought to be engaging in all of those things. Um, and I'm not so like, you know, hardcore, like expositional preaching that like you can't ever just stop and like <laughs> preach on the attributes of God, you know? Um, and so I'm all about it. Well, I mean, that's define expositional preaching, right? Uh, expositional yeah. preaching, I don't think, is you have to go sequentially only through books, which is, I think, the primary lines of meat of what you should do. But yeah, because I don't think you're saying let's not teach the scriptures and what it means. No, so <laughs> yeah, so like when I taught on the classical attributes of God, I just exposited texts that dealt with those doctrines. Yeah. Right. And and that's what I did. And it just wasn't in the context of like the normal book that our church yeah. was going through at the moment. So that's good. Yeah. I, I do think that there is this constant danger for us in our own context to become we're saturated with this this need and desire for pragmatic stuff. And so we say, well, we need to sign line some of these other we don't need to talk about the Trinity. We don't need to talk about the divine attributes. Those are not eminently practical for our people's lives. We need to talk about how do you solve your marital fights? How do you parent your children? Well, which, I mean, those aren't necessarily bad topics, but I think we underestimate the power uh, of the scriptures in the way that God has given them to us. And that we underestimate the transformative power of dwelling upon who God is. Right. So I think that there is just, we just undershoot that. I mean, talk about how big God is, talk about the work of Christ, and I think your people are going to be benefited far more from that, being removed from their circumstances and dwelling upon the heavenly uh, than they are going to be sitting there thinking about, here's seven more steps that I need to do, right? So I think you're absolutely right and just... Yes, it is practical to talk about the Trinity, despite what we think. But that's not necessarily what I need to really think about when I'm thinking about preaching and my church. Pragmatics are just not the number one thing, right? So, do you have any other, Connor? Do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I I think I'll say I just want to say one thing about Dale Tuggy. You know, uh, I'm 
disagreeing with him, but he's he's a well. Dale's gotten like fifteen shoutouts in this episode. He's, yeah, he's I mean, I just, I, oh, here's what I want to say. I mean, he's well more learned than I am, and so I'm going to humbly disagree with him at this point. And I also want to kind of give him kudos a little bit for coming on the show of the podcast, I should say, and knowing that I'm going to guess ninety nine point nine percent of our listeners are going to disagree. Um, but it was really helpful for me, so I appreciate him and and um, so yeah, that was. That was kudos to him. But and I, uh, another thing I would say about Cody, what he said with preaching these in the context of the local church, um, you know, one of the things that I emphasize, I actually preached on this recently as well. Um, um, just take, for example, the, the attribute of immutability. If, if God can be manipulated, if God can be changed, if he can be approached and, um, yeah, if he can be uh, mutable, then what do we have to fully trust in his covenant promises? And, and you, you take th- that thought and, and apply it to any form of promise, in, any promise in scripture, and you've got theology as practical at that point. Um, so that's one of the things I, I, I mentioned, um, you know, I, and I agree. I mean, catechesis, uh, Sunday Sunday school, um, a topical uh, sermon series, as long as it's exegetical, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you, you, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, recently I just started, our church started in Genesis. And one of the reasons, uh, amongst many reasons that I wanted to do Genesis was to start from the beginning um, and and do so from a theology of God. And a book that's been really helpful for me, if, if, if are we, can we shout out books, Jordan on the, on the podcast? Yeah. Richard Barcelos, uh, Trinity and creation. Um, and I know he's not the first person to, to draw this, uh, draw this, uh, point this out for us, but, um, he talks about how the 1689 is actually constructed, uh, to do theology properly, right? It starts with scripture. We have to have an understanding of doctrine of scripture. And then it starts with doctrine of God and then decree. And um, the reason it does this, he highlights, is that knowledge of who God is, he says, must condition and shape our explanation of what God does. So it was very practical in the sense that we're going to start even Genesis, even the whole canon of scripture, uh, with an understanding of who God is. And obviously, we need all of Scripture to help us inform that, uh, and that's sort of what I did. Um, I just took a text in the beginning, God, that's it, and then kind of formulated um, sort of a doctrine of, of God um, from the whole of Scripture. Okay, now we're ready. <laughs> now we're ready to move forward uh, with Genesis, and, and I think it's been really helpful, and, and um, you know, I've had a few people as Cody has had, hey, this is really, this is really helpful. I didn't, I, I never thought of it this way. Um, it helps them kind of frame what's about to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's been, uh, it can be a, a true blessing to the local church to just sit a little bit and try to grow in our understanding of, of the God who is. And uh, for the maximum of two of you who are listening or, or, you know, care to listen to those sermons, you can find them on the church website. Um, but uh, so I'll link to Connor's church's no, website. You will not. No, <laughs> <thank you. laughs> but yeah, all right. 
I would just type and just say, yeah, word to pastors um, out there who are listening um, or people who are just teaching in their local churches. Like this is a topic worth spending time reading in, right? Because the doctrine of who God is, like, as we talked about, is so applicable to issues like depression, anxiety, all these um, matters that so many people in our churches are wrestling with and dealing with, particularly in our like very chaotic cultural American moment, right? Where a lot of people are feeling anxieties, are feeling fear, are um, worried about the future. Um, this is like a really uh, great moment for pastors and teachers to use the doctrine of the Trinity and apply it to the lives of their people. Good stuff. So uh, if I'm assuming you guys don't have any more closing comments, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Though, if, if you're listening, you got more questions. Hit us up. We can talk about the Trinity again. Uh, do a, a round two based upon you know feedback and ideas, or we can focus more on some other topics. I think we've got some interesting episodes coming up that if you're listening to this right when it drops, they're going to be really interesting. But we've got some more uh, coming down the pike, I think is the proper way to say it. You know, for some reason I said pipe for a while because in my mind it was like, oh yeah, pipe. Okay. Anyway, well, you guys don't you, care. You can say pipeline. There you go. Pipeline. Yes. So yeah. then I get the best of both worlds. But not anyway, so for those who've been listening, we love to hear your thoughts. So if you've got questions, thoughts, ideas, hit us up. You, you can go to the website at the com. We've got a contact us place where you can, you know, send us a message. You can email us at contact at com. Or you can direct message us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, whatever you use. And um, yeah, so we'd love to hear from you. And as far as this episode goes, I'm going to make sure to link to some of these resources. I've got some other resources that I was looking at. I think Matthew Bates has a book that I have actually haven't read, but I have it on my shelf that I think has been, people have said great stuff about it. So I want to link to that. Uh, Maybe somebody else can give a shout out for it and say, yes, I'm going to vouch. But I'm going to link to those in the notes so you can find the resources. Because I think, as Cody, you said, we want to spend time thinking about the Trinity. And before I close up, I guess my co-host here needs to say something. He's been pulling my headphones off for the last uh, <laughs> as it draws. You want to say hi? No. All right. Well, everybody, you heard, him, heard it here first. No. So, anybody, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and professional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in.